Good morning, Chapel Hill. I have to just pause for a moment to say how wonderful I thought the music was this morning. I mean, it just teased me up, doesn't it? Not only the selections, but the, the execution was great. But here's the other piece. You sing so well. I mean, I just sat and listened to you singing. And really, by the way, that's what choirs are for. They're not here to perform. They're here to lead us in worship. And so for me to just listen to you all singing was a blessing. If you want to tee your pastor up to preach, uh, there's no better way to do it than to, to sing well. Because that, bring, that brings me up with great excitement. So it's good to have the privilege of breaking open God's word for us this morning. We're continuing in our journey through the book called The Story, which is an abridged version of the Bible. And, uh, and last week, we were all reading through the story of Daniel. How many uh, read your... Wasn't it a relief for us? Because up to now, we've had weeks really on end of kind of these long, dark, gloomy seasons, centuries really in the, in the story of the people of Israel, of uh, awful kings, one after another without any respite hardly, of invasions and ultimately of exile, which is the story of Daniel. Last week though, uh, the shafts of light began to shine through. As we, as we saw heroes rising up in captivity, heroes like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and, of course, of Daniel, who were being faithful to God without wavering in a foreign land, in a very uh, difficult circumstance. So that was, that was encouraging. God called those people to stay. We have no reason to believe that they ever left Babylon. They lived in, in exile, in captivity, for all of their lives, as far as we know. But today, as we turn to the book of Ezra, we discover that God had a different plan for about 50,000 of his people, 50,000 people that he called back from Babylon, back to Jerusalem, and gave them a really remarkable uh, job, a big job. And we're going to take a look at that. I'm going to walk us through uh, important parts of the book of Ezra today. It will be a little tough for you to follow it in your Bible because I've kind of uh, abbreviated passages in order to get a bunch of chunks in there. But if you'll just follow along with me, we're going to walk through this great story. And I hope at the end that you're going to be inspired for your own work of temple building, which is what we're about. All right? So we're going to start with uh, Ezra chapter 1, the very first verse. Here's what we read when we turn to this great book, Ezra. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus to make a proclamation throughout his realm. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Father, would you speak to us and make this more than a history lesson today? Would you speak to us in our own hearts, in our own lives, in the things you are calling us to build for your sake, that we might be diligent and faithful and enduring? In Jesus' name, amen. I want to show you a picture. This is a remarkable archaeological find. This is called Cyrus's Cylinder. 
Cyrus's cylinder. It's the Cyrus we were just reading about. It was unearthed in the ruins of Babylon in modern-day Iraq. One of those Iraq nations. It was modern-day Babylon. Uh, I mean, ancient Babylon. Uh, It was unearthed in 1879. And if you could read the script, you would read that it tells of Cyrus's decree that the Jews would be sent back from exile, back to Jerusalem, and begin the work of rebuilding their, their, their temple. It's an astounding archaeological discovery that confirms the legitimacy, the veracity of Scripture. Isn't that amazing? Uh, here's something else that's amazing. In this story that we're reading, we're discovering how God takes a pagan king and bends him to his purposes. God is going to use the decree of a pagan king, Cyrus, who's calling him the God of heaven, who resides in Jerusalem, bigger than Jerusalem, but at least he's giving him that that much credit. And, And this king is going to order the rebuilding of his temple, and as we will discover, he even funds most of the rebuilding of the temple of God. It's an amazing, amazing story of the sovereignty of God working in and through all of the peoples of the earth, including those who don't even bow their name before him. And so uh, the, the, we have this account. This, they're going to send back these, these Jews from Babylon and they're going to rebuild the temple. And for the first time in 70 years, God's people are going to be able to worship him again as he intended. For those of you who were here last week, I shared a picture of me in my ministry back in my early 20s. Um, I want to show you another picture that occurred about, that was taken about 10 years later, and it was taken on one of the most momentous days of my ministry life. Take a peek. This was taken on November 23rd, 1997, and that was the day when we opened this building. It was the dedication of this sanctuary. I want to ask you, how many of you were here that day? Raise your hands. Look around. Look around. Last night, three people raised their hand. Three people. And even here, the vast majority of folks were not here on that day. Uh, After years of prayer and, and delaying things, putting off things, making other priorities after prayerful sacrifice where people were really digging deep to raise a a lot of money, we we set out to build a building that was far bigger than we needed at the time. And our reason for that was we believed that God wanted to bring other people to this community. We wanted to make a building that was big enough that anyone that God would call to be a part of his church here at Chapel Hill, there would be a, a place for them. There would be a pew with their name on it. And so, for every one of you who did not raise your hands this morning, you were the literal answer to our prayers. We prayed for you, we expected you, we've been waiting for you, and you are the fruit of that sacrifice, and we thank God for you. We thank God for you. Now, the work on our sanctuary, this building, began in 1996. That's 20 years ago this year. I want you to imagine this, though. What if the work that had begun 20 years ago what if it was not yet finished? What if we would have to drive by here and we'd look and we see a shell of this building still unfinished, still, still standing incomplete as we packed our way into eight services down in the memorial chapel or whatever it is we would be doing? How do you think those of us who raised our hands and were here in 1996, Tom, who was part of the, of the campaign, how, how, many, how would we feel if we, if we were looking here 20 years later, the darn thing was still not built? Well, 
That's exactly what the Jews who returned experienced when they came back to Jerusalem for, for, from, from Babylon. They started their temple project with great enthusiasm, and 20 years later, it was still not finished. 20 years. So this morning, I want to walk you through that journey. Because I actually think there's a lot for us to learn about this. We don't build temples anymore, but we are about the work of building things that are even more important, as I'm going to make the case later on. And I think these stages that they went through, the experiences that they had, the, the hurdles that they encountered, I think they will speak to us. They spoke to me. They, they spoke to me, and I, ho- and I hope they will speak to you. So the first stage that we discover in this is devotion. Would you say that? I don't know if you paid attention, but in the first reading, we read twice that God moved hearts. He moved the heart of Cyrus, the king of the Persians, we read. But he also moved the hearts of the people, the specific people that he was calling to leave Babylon, take a 900-mile journey, and go to a place that most of them had never even seen before. It's a big crowd, 50,000, but actually it's, it's a pittance compared to the, the number that remained in Babylon. The vast majority of them stayed there. Like I said, Daniel stayed there so far as we know. Esther, whom we will meet next week, she stayed there and continued to be a witness in a foreign land. So not all were called. But what we do know is that the ones that God called, he inspired. He moved their hearts. He gave them a sense of vision, a sense of purpose. There was an excited sense of devotion for what God was calling them to do. I wish all of you could... I wish all of you could share in the sense of excitement that we who raised our hands had. Am am I right about that, those who were there? There was such an enthusiasm, such an excitement, such a sense that we are part of something that was bigger than ourselves, a a sense that we were going to do something that was going to kick a dent in Gig Harbor history and make a difference for God in the world. That's what we believed when we were a part of building this thing. We felt devoted. We were devoted. Every family that was there had an opportunity to, to, uh, to, to decorate and to sign a rock. I still have a picture of little Rachel holding her rock. And then we threw those rocks into the foundation forms. And we covered those rocks with concrete. So this day we are sitting on a foundation that has at its core the names of the families who said, this is something God is calling us to do and we want to be a part of it. We were devoted. We were so excited. And so were those Jews when they came. God moved their hearts. The first thing they did when they got to Jerusalem, you will read, is that they actually built the altar. They built the altar. And, and for the first time in 70 years, they began to do the, offer the sacrifices that God had instructed them to offer. And as the, as the smoke wafted up into, this, into the heavens, what a joy it must have been for them once again to be worshiping God aright. And after the altar was done and after the the sacrifices were begun, then we read the next step, which was to lay the foundation stones for the, the temple, the rebuilt temple. So I want to read this section to you now. This comes out of chapter 3. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and the Levites with symbols took their places to praise the Lord. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord. But many of the older priests and Levites who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy 
No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Do you know what phase often follows a sense of intense devotion? Disillusionment. Disillusionment. And that's what happened here in this in the story. Some of the people there were old enough to remember Solomon's temple. And you've heard it described. Solomon's temple, it was glorious, believed to be one of the most glorious buildings ever built in the world. It was covered with white stone. It was overlaid with gold. It was adorned with the finest of craftsmanship. And everyone who came saw it was reminded of the wonder and the wealth and the power of Solomon in his kingship. When the old timers signed up to go back to rebuild the temple, that was the temple they thought they were going to build. That was what they expected to rebuild. That was their expectation. But God had other plans for them. The days of opulence were over. Solomon's days, those golden days, they were over. God brought judgment upon that kingdom because they were irrepressibly idolatrous. Even after hundreds of years of chances, he finally said, I've had enough of you and your opulence, which has led you to nothing but idolatry. So he wiped them out, sent them into exile, and allowed the temple, the glorious temple of Solomon, to be destroyed, to be utterly razed. So when these new, uh, when the old timers came back and they realized when they saw that the foundation stones, how big it was going to be, it was going to be so modest, the reminder of their past was just thrown aside and they were filled with regret at what they had wasted, what they had squandered. And there was a sense of disillusionment. This is what we signed on for. But it turns out that their dreams were not God's dreams. What they wanted to have happen, a return to the glorious day, that was not what God wanted to have happen. And so we we read this interesting story of the youngsters who are celebrating and shouting with joy while the old timers are weeping for what was lost and for what would never be. Any of you ever been disillusioned, disappointed? The dreams that you had didn't, didn't, didn't work out? By the way, I I just want to pause here to say, I think this passage is a powerful image of the church. On any given Sunday, you're going to have shouters and weepers. Aren't you? You're going to have people who are here that they're so filled with joy about what God is doing in their midst. And then you're going to have those who are here that are just devastated by the circumstances of their life that have just kicked them in the teeth. And may I say, we need each other. We need each other. The weepers need the shouters to be encouraged. And the shouters need the weepers to be grounded. And together, in our weeping and in our shouting, we lift up one glorious voice of praise to the Lord. That's what it means to be the church. That's why we need each other in these moments of our worship life together. So, we have a phase of devotion, intense devotion. We have a phase of disillusionment. And here comes the next one. Watch for the D word. You know me. I'm pretty predictable. Let me read from uh, chapter 4. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple 
for the Lord, the God of Israel. They came to Zerubbabel. That was the guy that was heading up. He was the general contractor. And what better name? You're going to raise up a building out of rubble? Zerubbabel? It's perfect. They came to Zerubbabel and said, let us help you build. But Zerubbabel answered, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. So neighbors from the surrounding area, they come and they make what seems like a really generous offer. They say, hey, let us help. We want to help you build this building. We, we like your God. We want to help. But, but from the beginning, from the very first verse, we understand that there's, it's not all as it appears to be. Because in the very first verse, they are identified as the enemies of Benjamin. And Judah. They are the enemies who have shown up. And we discover that they really are not interested in rebuilding the temple. They really are not interested in seeing Jerusalem restored to its power. They are interested in being invited into this project so they can scuttle it, so they can hamper it, so they can draw the thing out and never allow it to come to completion. And we discover their real intent after the offer is refused because we read these words. They hired counselors to work against and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus down to the reign of Darius. 20 years. Can you imagine someone who is so opposed to what you're doing that they hire counselors to frustrate you, to vex you for 20 years? What do we read that this opposition produced in the people? Did you see it? Discouragement. Would you say that? Any of you ever been discouraged? Yeah, it is often the case, it is often the case, we start out with devotion, excitement about what God has called us to do. We hit a patch of disillusionment that we have to kind of meander our way through until we are aligned once again with what God wants. But then comes opposition, and with opposition comes discouragement. I remember in the early days of this project... Such incredible discouragement. It's, it, it sounds like it could have been taken out of the book of Ezra because there were some city bureaucrats who were assigned to our project. Inspectors who made our life hell. Uh, they delayed, delayed, delayed and ended up costing hundreds of thousands of dollars at, the, at one point nine hundred thousand dollars more by what was laid upon us. And we reasoned with them, we worked with them, we tried to finesse with them. Nothing worked. And we were being stymied, and we were not going to be able to build the building that we thought God was calling us to build. So finally, one day, we said, all right, we're going to take this on. And we went down to the old city hall, and I invited the congregation to show up. I said, I want you to pack this place out. I want you to be polite. Don't say a word. Do not yaw. Do not boo. Do not applaud. Just sit silently and pray. And we stood... And we made a presentation. We said, we want to offer a gift to this community. We want to offer to you a building that you don't have right now. A place large enough that baccalaureate services could take place in. A place large enough where the concerts of our children in their schools could take place that's decent and worth it. A place where uh, memorial services for dignitaries could be held. Where we, could. we want to give, and We're not asking you to give us any money. 
We will build this at our expense and we will give it to you. We are just asking you to get out of our way. And that night, the city council voted unanimously to overturn the staff's ruling and allowed us to move ahead and build our building. It was one of the great moments in our project. But I'm telling you, up until that point, and beyond that, there were our moments too. It was one series of discouragements after another, and we never thought we would get it done. You ever been there? So the phases are devotion, disillusionment, discouragement, and now we come to an interesting one. Dawdling. Would you say that? (laughs) Dawdling. Now at first, the dawdling, the delay, that's another D word, I'm full of them. Uh, at, At first, it was a result of the opposition that had been played before them. Uh, they, 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 they delayed because they couldn't help it. But pretty soon we discover over 16 years that the, the, do, the dawdling was really their work. You see, the people realized that they liked saying, we'll push this off to the future. We'll procrastinate this work on the, on the building. We will, their, their, their motto became manana. Before there was a manana, they, they became, and, and pretty soon there was 16 years of mananas later, and the building is still not built. How often is that the case for us? We know what we need to do. We know that we ought to pray more today. We know that we need marriage counseling today. We know that our kids deserve more of our time today. We know that we need to lose 30 pounds yesterday. But we dawdle, 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 dawdle. And the best, most essential thing for our own temple building gets pushed off into the distance. And that's what happened with God's people. Finally, God sends along a prophet named Haggai to kick them in the butt. I would like you to listen to the butt-kicking prophecy that Haggai offered. And brace yourself for this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people, he's talking about the people of Jerusalem, the Jews. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Give, your, give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? Because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with his own house. Why did the people dawdle? Distraction. The people became distracted with their own needs. Where once they were excited to be building God's house, now they were only excited to be building their own paneled houses. Where once they had given sacrificially to build something that would outlast them, something that would bring honor and glory to God and a witness to the world, 
Now they were siphoning off those tithes, those first fruits, to their own pockets. And by the way, it didn't work. It never works. Did you notice God's judgment on it? He said essentially this, you think that you're going to save the money that should have gone to my work. You think you're going to save the tithes that belong to me. But you are storing it in purses that have holes in it. And everything you have invested in, I'm going to curse because you're using my money. Everything you put your hand to will suffer because you are so distracted taking care of yourself that you have forgotten your God. It is a sad fact today that many of God's people are so distracted with building and accumulating and hoarding more and more beautiful things for themselves that they utterly ignore the work of God and leave it to others to care for. And I wonder how many here this morning who are hoarding God's tithes for themselves have discovered that unexpected repairs and financial downturns end up stealing all and more than you stole from God in the first place. If you look upon your finances and you feel like there's a curse upon them and you continue to siphon off the first fruits that belong to God, Scripture couldn't be clearer about that, then you might have your answer. Anyhow, it was a long and hard road rebuilding the temple and they went through all of these phases, devotion, disillusionment, discouragement, dawdling and distraction. And it reminds me of the words of Jesus that he spoke in the book of Revelation in the vision to the the church of the Ephesians. He said, I have this against you. You have lost your first love. You used to love me. You used to make a priority of my worship and my mission. But you have lost that first love. But finally, Haggai's words bring about repentance. And we read this glorious piece of news. Finally, the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. After 20 years of dawdling, 20 years of distraction, finally the people finished the work and the temple was done. We've been looking throughout this journey uh, for what we're calling the scarlet thread, the appearances of Jesus uh, throughout the Old Testament, the whispers of, glimpses of. Some of them are are more obvious, more uh, uh, glaring. I want to share one with you that is a little less obvious, but that struck me as I was doing my preparation for the message this week. You remember from our our video, and you'll see tomorrow, when the exiles returned from Babylon, one of the remarkable things was the king said, all of these furnishings, all of the gold, all of the utensils that, that the Babylonians carried off, the Persian king says, I want you to take them. I give them all to you. They're all stored here. It was a remarkable down payment on the work that they had to do in the temple. So they carried back virtually everything that had been carried away in the first place to restore the temple worship. But there was one piece of temple furniture that was missing. Do you know what it was? The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember what that was? The Ark of the Covenant was a gold-covered box. And inside of the box was contained the tablets of the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod, a jar that held the original manna. The Ark of the Covenant was, uh, also had these two angels that sat on the top of the, of the, uh, of the, of the, uh, on, on the top. And they were looking at each 
uh, towards, their heads were bound, and they were looking towards something. Do you know what that space in the, between the two angels to which the, uh, the angels were bowed, do you know what that was called? You do. The mercy seat. The mercy seat. The mercy seat was where the holy God was believed to come and bring his mercy to meet his people. And every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the holiest part of the tabernacle or the holiest part of the temple when it was built. A a place that was separated from the rest of the temple by a four-inch thick curtain that went from the ceiling to the floor. The high priest would go behind that curtain and he would bow down before the mercy seat and pray God's forgiveness for his people. The Ark of the Covenant was the most important piece of furnishing. And ironically, it was the one piece that was lost when the Babylonians invaded and carried the people into exile. Until, of course, 75 years ago when Indiana Jones found it, which is (laughs) great news for us. So in the new temple behind that thick curtain, there was just a a a cold slab of stone with nothing. There was nothing in the Holy of Holies. And so when the high priest came in on the Day of the Atonement, there was nothing to kneel down and pray in front of. So you know what he did? He would bring in his censer, which is the cylinder that that has the, the burning incense that represents the prayers of the people of God. He would bring in his censer behind the curtain and he would set it down on the slab and that censor and his prayers would, would, would be basically this, God, would you restore the mercy seat? Would you bring back the mercy seat? Would you find a way once again to restore, to reconcile yourself to your people? 500 years later, God answered that prayer. 500 years later, the body of Jesus Christ lay on a cold slab of stone not far from this place. When Jesus had died on the cross, that curtain that separated God from humanity, that curtain was torn miraculously four inches thick. It was torn from top to bottom, symbolizing the access of God to his people. And when those people knelt down around the body of Jesus to prepare it for his burial, they had no idea that they were laying their hands on the mercy seat, the place where God's great grace And humanity's great need converged. The temple builders set 500 years earlier had no idea what they were doing. Had no idea how God would fill the holy of holies. But they trusted that God would. You might ask, what difference does this make to us today? We're not temple builders. We're not Mormons. We don't build temples. Ah, but we do, actually. Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthians, wrote these words, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's Spirit lives in you? Paul would have said, Don't you know that y'all are God's temple? Y'all are God's temple. We don't need a building of stone and adorned with gold. You are the temple of God. And you are the holy of holies because the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. So as a matter of fact, we are temple builders. We're in the business of building us. 
Building us up. That is our mission as a church, working together to present everyone mature in Christ. Building us up so that we might be repositories of the Spirit and so that people might point to us and say, look at God, look at His work. I want to be a part of that. We are the the repository. We are the place where the mercy seat is discovered. And temple building is still hard work. I wonder if you found yourself somewhere in that journey, those phases, as you were were listening to them, where were you? Are you in the devoted stage where you're so excited and, and, and fired up that you can hardly stand it? Can't, can't stand to be away from church. Love your life group. Involved in mission. Thank God for that and nurture it. Cling to it. Hold on to it and treasure it as long as you have. Maybe you're in a place, though, of disillusionment where you've, the pastor said something you don't like, where your life group isn't what you expected it to be, where the church has let you down in some place. Maybe you are in a place of discouragement. Your life is just beating you up whether it's a report from the doctor or a report from your spouse, a report about your child, there are just things that are kicking you in the teeth and you don't feel like you have any heart left to do the work of God. Maybe you're a dawdler. You know what you ought to be doing. It's very clear to you that God, what God wants of you, and yet you just keep putting it off, putting it off, manana, manana. Or maybe you are one of the many who are distracted. You're so busy taking care of your own needs, your own vision, your own dreams, your own luxury that you neglect the work of God. Where are you in that story? I ask that question because I tell you that as your pastor, I have been in all of those places in my ministry here. And I'm your pastor. But I have been in every one of those places along the way. And I have learned this about temple building. It is a long game. You just keep showing up. It's a long game, and you just keep showing up. I remember times of disillusionment. Disillusionment with the denomination that I had made vows to serve. Disillusionment when I realized that the dreams I had for the church at one point were not at all what God wanted to have. Disillusionment with you at times. Disappointment. And I have come to realize that every time I am disillusioned, it means that, I, that my vision has, does not align with God's vision. Disillusionment is always comes from my expectations being different from God's expectations. And so when I find myself disillusioned, I have prayed God to align my expectations with yours. I have been discouraged too. Over the 28 plus years of ministry here, there are times that I have been wounded. Times when beloved colleagues fell morally. Times when we had to make very difficult decisions as a session. Times when I went through a lawsuit that just broke my heart. There were times when I got on my knees in my bedroom And prayed that the Lord would take me somewhere else. I was so discouraged. But I have come to understand that the way through discouragement is to remember. To remember God's faithfulness. He has brought you through this and he'll bring it through you again. There are times when I didn't want to do what I needed to do. I was so sick of writing sermons. 
I didn't want to write another sermon. I didn't think I would. I would sat in front of empty, uh, a blank computer screen. I thought I don't have a word to say. There was a time when the last thing I. There have been times when the last thing I wanted to do was make another phone call, have another appointment. And I have learned over the long haul that in those moments you do one thing. Do not everything. Do the next one thing. And there are times when I have resented our, not only our tithing, but our giving beyond. There are times when I've looked at that and said, you know, if I directed that money towards our mortgage, we'd pay our house off faster. I would have money, money accumulated to put my kids to school. There's times when I, I questioned my generosity. And then, of course, I'm drawn back to the fact of the generosity of God. And who can outgive God? So I'm telling you, Every one of these phases I have lived through as your pastor. And I urge you to be courageous in taking a look at where you find yourself right now. And ask the Lord to heal that. Ask the Lord to move you beyond that so that you can reach a point, once again, of devotion and of dedication and enthusiasm for the Lord. And as we do that, may the Lord build this temple and so fill it with His Holy Spirit that we are empowered encouraged that the power of the, of the Spirit is so obvious that throngs of people will be drawn to us and say, ah, there's the mercy seat of God. Let's pray. Sorry, Lord, I went long. But it's, this is on my heart. It seems to be a real place for me, even as I think through it. And I pray that it would be more than an interesting history lesson for us, but that you would meet us in this moment and help us to find that tender spot where in touching it, we realize, oh, that's the place that I need to let the Lord work. So God set us free what, from disillusionment, from discouragement, from our dawdling, from our distractions. And may we be faithful temple builders for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.